Well, I don't know whether you realise, but last year was the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. And the King James Bible has impacted the world. And lots of people recognise that. For example, David Cameron, who is the British Prime Minister, said this about the Bible. The Bible is a book that has not just shaped our country, but shaped the world. A book that is not just important in understanding our past, but which will continue to have a profound impact on shaping our collective future. I think that's true. I've got a lot of hope for what the Bible will do in the future, for what God's word will do. I think it will continue to shape the rest of this world. Of course, not all parts of the Bible seem to have the same impact. So when you go to the Levitical laws on sores and skin diseases, I don't know that too many people know what they're about. Or alternatively, if you go to Numbers and think about the census figures there, most people kind of skip over those things. But one of the parts of the Bible that seems to have had a significant impact is the Sermon on the Mount. And we can see that in lots of different ways. For example, religious leaders such as Gandhi said this, I came to see that the Sermon on the Mount was the whole of Christianity for him who wanted to live the Christian life. It is that sermon that has endeared Jesus to me. Now, Gandhi wasn't a Christian, but he could see that it defined what the Christian life was like. And he could see what Jesus was doing. Of course, the Sermon on the Mount is used in other ways. Barack Obama used it in a fairly odd way, I think. But anyway, we cannot rebuild this economy on the same pile of sand. We must build our house upon a rock. I'm not entirely sure that's exactly what Jesus was getting at, but you can see that kind of influence of the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, there are other cultural references as well that you might be familiar with. Now, the problem is, because the Sermon on the Mount is so well known, people kind of interpret it in lots of different ways. And they use it to support all kinds of different arguments. And I guess that's why we need to be thoughtful about what it says. Because we want to be clear, what is it that Jesus is actually saying here? If it's impacted the world in such a way, how will it impact us? What is Jesus actually saying? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to start unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. Now tonight, we kind of have an introduction night, an introduction into the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be looking at a couple of things, uh, such as the who, what and how of the Sermon on the Mount. It's an introduction. We'll be dealing at depth later on. So you've got to come back. Let's think about the who, what and how of the Sermon on the Mount. The first question is, who is the Sermon on the Mount directed at? Now, you might like to look in your Bibles and you'll see this passage from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And you'll see two groups of people mentioned here. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And then right at the other end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So clearly we've got two groups of people. Now, if you're wondering what the pictures on the side are, 
Um, that's my holiday snaps. Um, a couple of years ago, we went over to Israel. We had the privilege of going there with Bishop Paul Barnett, who's a historian from Macquarie University, and he showed us around. Uh, the one on top is where uh, traditionally it's thought Jesus preached this sermon. The one on the bottom is probably more likely, but if you've ever been to Israel, they always put on church on everything that seems to be maybe like where Jesus was. So it happened somewhere around there. It's real, it took place. But let's think about these crowds and disciples. Let's go back to them. You may have heard in the readings already this evening that Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of heaven. We know from Matthew, if you flip back through Matthew, you'll find that Jesus has been announced. Um, Jesus has been, uh, people have understood who Jesus was through his genealogy. Uh, people have also looked at his birth, or Matthew has looked rather at his birth. We've heard that Jesus has been tested and tempted and that he's defeated the devil. And we've heard that he's begun to preach. And as he preaches, and then as he heals, these crowds start to follow him. They're intrigued. They want to know what Jesus is doing. But in the midst of that, you might notice in chapter 4, that he starts calling some disciples, some pupils, some people he wants to particularly teach. And so, as we come to this passage, you'll see the two different groups of people. Now the question is, who is Jesus actually speaking to here? Well, I think from this passage, Jesus is actually speaking to the disciples. I want to suggest that the crowds are there and they overhear what's going on. It's not as if that shouldn't impact them in some way, but his particular focus is the disciples and those who are following him. It's not to suggest that Jesus' words don't apply elsewhere, but here I think Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And that's important because of this. What follows, and this is Bill Donbrill said this in his book Search for Order, a great book, what follows are not conditions for entry into the, into the kingdom of God, but characteristics of those who have already entered. This is a, not a way to get into the kingdom of God. These are already followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. And these are instructions to those disciples. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, true, people are there overhearing this. And if you're here this evening and you're someone who's trying to explore what the Christian faith is about, please keep coming because you will overhear, as we, in the following weeks, unpack what a Christian person looks like, what a follower of Jesus looks like. If you are already a follower of Jesus, expect what Jesus says to challenge you and change you over the next few weeks because he's speaking directly to those who follow him. And he's saying, this is what you should look like. Now tonight, as I suggested, this is an introduction and we're going to briefly look at what Jesus says. And we're going to make three different points, kind of things that we can observe throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And then we're going to talk about the big picture or the pattern that takes place within the Sermon on the Mount. So let's 
talk about the what of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teaching confronts our failures. Jesus' teaching demands our obedience. And Jesus' teaching inspires us to live richly. That's what we're going to look at. So come with me as we do that. Jesus confronts our failures. We read, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21-22, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, you've got to know the context of those words. Just before that, Jesus has been talking about murder. And he says anyone who murders someone else will be subject to judgment. And then directly after that, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Do you feel the weight? Do you feel confronted? Do you get angry? Do you get angry with your brothers and sisters, with your fellow followers of Jesus? Do you have disagreements with them? Do you have disagreements with those around you and show your anger? This says you will be subject to judgment. Wow, that's that's heavy. That's a weight to bear. Now, I must say, there's more to say about that. But I want to say this evening, I just want you to feel the weight of that. Jesus goes on to say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard that's being applied here. A standard well beyond our reach. Impossible to reach. Now, some people have read the Sermon on the Mount and seen that. Uh, It has humbled them and that's entirely appropriate. I think the Sermon on the Mount is a humbling passage, a humbling sermon. It gets rid of any self-righteousness you might have. It confronts you with the fact that you still behave in ways that brings God's judgement. But for some people, that weight is so heavy, it stops them. It's like a spotlight has been shined on their life and they're kind of caught in the spotlight and they can't move. And they're left standing. And they're so aware of their own sin and their own failure, they can't move. They kind of get to a point in their life where they say, well, it's always going to be like this. I'm always going to fail. I'll let the grace of God deal with it. But that would be to do a disservice to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount wants us to feel that, but it wants us to call us on to something else. He wants to call us into obedience. 
And so we read passages like Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, which says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It calls us to lift our eyes and behave in such a way that it's consistent with following Christ. It demands our obedience. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. An act of the will. Yes, an awareness of who we are, but a decision to act in a particular way. Now, yesterday, if you were here, you would have heard the bishop talking about Stephen the martyr in Acts. He loved his enemies. He was praying for those who persecuted him and he lost his life. Of course, the greatest example we have of that is Jesus in his death. He knew what it was to be obedient to the Father. And the Sermon on the Mount calls us into obedience. It calls us to be aware of our own failures but calls us on into obedience to the Father. An act of the will. Do you still feel like the standard's very high? Unattainable? I feel like that. But we're called on. What else does the Sermon on the Mount do. It inspires us. It inspires us because it shows us a very different world, a very different way of living. And in fact, that's what makes it so attractive to those who don't have faith. They look at it and say, that is an attractive way of living. I'm going to talk about the need for obedience or the recognition of failure, but it's an attractive way of living. And Jesus tells us that by showing us that picture of the house that was built on the sand and the house that was built on the rock. Remember the story towards the end? You might remember the story towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, notice that put them into, is obedient, is like a wise man who has built his house on a rock. You want a sure foundation for your life? You want to be wise? You want to live richly? You want to have an abundant life? Then the way forward is to hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice. It's inspiring. Wow, my whole life built on a sure foundation. Isn't that what we all want? We don't want to waste our lives. We want them to be built on something firm and solid. To embrace life and to live it richly. And that's exactly what Jesus is offering. He's saying, live life. Build it on a sure foundation. And we'll see that weaved throughout the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks. Now, I said we'd look at a particular kind of patterns that were taking place, but then we'll look more generally. What is Jesus doing by calling us to these things? What is the overall movement that is taking place here? Well, Jesus, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is here. He's asking us to shift perspective 
from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. He's asking us to move from one place to another. Colossians 3 puts it as putting off and putting on. Putting off the ways of this world, putting on the clothes of righteousness. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing as he talks with his disciples. He's saying, I want you to move. I want you to move from where you were to be somewhere different. To be a follower of mine. And that's exactly what the Christian life is about. It's moving from not being a follower of Jesus to being a closer follower of Jesus. And that can be quite challenging. Uh, in the last week you've heard, we've, or in the last 10 days actually, we've moved. This is a picture of our house where we came from. You can see it's neatly ordered. Um, I knew where the knives were. I knew where the forks were. I knew how to find the bathroom. I had three steps to walk up to get into my house and those were only steps in the building. It was familiar. I knew where I was. I knew where everything was. In the last ten days, though, something has changed and this is a picture of my wife, Jane, in the kitchen. I have no idea where the knives are. I'm still looking for the bathroom. No, actually, that's not quite true. There are lots of steps. In fact, we have a policy that means that if you are at the top, you have to take something down with you and if you're at the bottom, you have to take something up with you. There are 21 steps from the bottom to the top. It's great exercise. But moving from one place to another has meant we've changed. We've changed our behaviour, we've changed the way we think, we've changed what we do, we've changed where we find things. It means a complete shift because we've moved from one place to another. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's trying to move us from one place to another. He's trying to move us to be followers of his own, to build our lives on a sure foundation. But if you're like me, it seems too hard. Like that's, that's, that's a big call. I'd love to be like that, but that kind of seems overwhelming. It's hard enough getting up in the morning sometimes without thinking about my whole world changing. Well, it's amazing. God always provides us with the resources that we need to change. And at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, we find a prayer. It's a prayer you might have said in lots of different contexts and it's usually said by itself. And that's great. But when you start to read it in context and you start to see what Jesus has been teaching and you start to understand what Jesus has been saying to his disciples, you suddenly see the prayer in a completely different light. You start to see, oh, this is about a shift. I'm actually asking God to do something in me. I'm actually asking God to change me when I pray this prayer. It's not just a prayer to say, because I know it, it's, it's meaningful, it's deep. Now tonight we don't have time to go into the whole prayer and of course what I'm speaking about 
is the how. And it's by God's grace. At the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is this prayer. Now, as I say, we're not going to unpack it this evening, but just let me make a couple of points and then we're going to say it together. I'm going to invite you to say it with us if you want to be that kind of person who shifts from one world to another, who wants to be touched and changed and transformed by the Sermon on the Mount. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You struggling with this? I do. Guess what? Your Father, the loving creator of this world, the one who calls you son or daughter, the one who loves you so much he sent his son to die for you, knows what you need before you ask. But ask anyway. This is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Change me. Change this world. Move me. Your will be done. Your will be done. Bend my will to yours. Help me face the sinfulness of my own life, my own failures. Help me be obedient. Inspire me to live in a godly way. Forgive our debts because we'll need it. As we have also forgiven our debtors, we'll learn how to do that. You see what I mean? And what I want you to do is as we go through this series... Keep coming back to this prayer and seeing how it interacts with what we're saying. Try and see how it, it fills out and, and makes clear what God is doing here. And let God, let's God's grace transform who you are and continue to transform who you are. Well, I want to finish tonight by asking you to say this prayer with us. If you're someone who's still working out what it means to follow Jesus, um, you can say the prayer. I invite you to do that. If you're someone who's already committed to following Jesus, I ask you to say the prayer as well. So let's say this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but please deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Folks, we're going to sing in just a minute. We're going to give you a chance just to reflect on what you've heard from God's word tonight. Uh, You can do that with the Bible open or a Bible closed. Now would be a perfect opportunity if you have some reflections on tonight's service, if you want to communicate something to us on one of those cards to write on it. They'll be collected during uh, the offertory, which is collected during this song.